The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Brooks Garcia is fulfilling his dream in the Northeast Georgia mountains. The sun awakens him every day to his new adventures at Villa del Soleil, a Tuscan-style home and a garden complete with long vistas to far mountain ridges. He designed and built his Georgia version of a Tuscan-style home, complete with a clay tile roof and a wood-burning fireplace. When the sun slips behind the ridge, Brooks celebrates another fulfilling day building his garden with a swimming pool soak. In our conversation, Brooks reveals the key to unlocking Georgia's red clay soils and growing flourishing healthy plants in your garden. Designing and building his last great garden, he talks about his favorite plants and how to use them in garden design. Some you will not believe. He shares his hands-in-the-dirt experience building award-winning gardens at the Chelsea Flower Show, the Southeastern Flower Show, and the Fox Hall Flower Show. Brooks worked with Ryan Ganey as his personal assistant, where he helped create many outstanding gardens in Atlanta, Long Island, and abroad in France. For 25 years, Brooks created gardens for his fellow Atlantans through his own company, Fine Gardens. Brooks attended the Lovett School and upon graduation went to the University of Georgia, earning his BLA in landscape architecture. Brooks has given his time restoring historical old Clarksville Cemetery, hills and dales in LaGrange, and historic Oakland Cemetery. This is episode 107 from The Soil Up with Brooks Garcia on the Garden Question podcast. This is a remix and encore presentation of episode 11. Brooks, what is a landscape garden to you? Well, it depends on what you describe as landscape garden. There is a landscape and then there's a garden. I think of it's two separate things. Because I have a degree in environmental design, that's a fancy word for landscape architecture. We were taught in history of landscape architecture is that a landscape was more like what Capability Brown did in England. It would be a sweeping scene with trees and shrubs and possible outbuildings or follies or something of that sort, where I see a garden being more of an intimate experience and planting more up near a house. Tell us about your transition to Northwest Georgia. I used to live in Atlanta. I was a second generation Atlantan. I had the opportunity to move out of Atlanta and live my dream. I had fallen in love with the Northeast Georgia mountains when I was in my early 20s. I worked at a boys camp on Lake Burton. It was called Camp Cherokee for Boys. It was about 20 minutes north of where I am now. I'm in Demarest, Georgia, and it was in Batesville. Lake Burton was a Georgia power lake that was built in the 20s. It's absolutely spectacular. It's quite built up now with a lot of very grand second homes. 
back then it wasn't nearly so much and the camp was rather primitive. We would take the kids camping in the forest in the next valley over. I've always considered myself a country boy trapped in a city boy's body. I absolutely loved that. That's when I fell in love with these mountains and told a friend that I made that summer, and he and I are still friends and celebrate our 40th year as friends next year, that one day I'm going to retire up here. And by golly, I did it. Would you complete this statement, in my garden, I have? One of everything. (laughs) (laughs) I am a botanical Noah and have always been. I've got just about one of everything. All joking aside, I live in a Tuscan-style Italian villa. A lot of people tell me that when they come down the driveway, that they literally feel transported to Tuscany. In order to do that, I've had to use plant material that would evoke that. When you pull in the driveway, you come up a gentle slope through an alley of Lombardi poplars. Now, you might ask, why Lombardi poplars? Because my plant professor at the University of Georgia would be spinning in his grave to know that I use those trees. <laughs> They're not long lived. They're a bit trashy and they grow really fast. I'm 60 years old and I don't have much time left. So I needed something that would grow fast, that was fastidious, and that would give that look of Italy. About four years ago, maybe five, I ordered some trees from a nursery. They came in a bag with nothing on their roots, and they were about two and a half, three feet tall. Some of those trees are 40 feet tall now. They do grow fast. Some of my plant friends said, now, why did you use that trash tree? I said, because they're going to grow really fast. And they said, but they're going to die in 30 or 30, 40 years. I said, not my problem. (laughs) And under them right now are about 10,000 wild daffodils, what they call the lint lily, which is uh, Narcissus pseudo-Narcissus. It makes quite a display at this time of the year. Then it's followed by Lycoris radiata, the spider lilies in the fall. And there's probably about six or 800 of those. Are those interplanted? No, actually, the daffodils are in bloom, and they'll finish blooming, and then they'll finish their cycle, and their foliage will die away. They'll disappear. The foliage of the spider lilies is up because it started coming up in the fall, and they bloomed in September and October. It will persist about the same time as the daffodils, the foliage will die away. It'll be a clean slate there in the summer then. Yes, I'd like to say grass, but it's basically going to be weeds holding hands. Yeah. (laughs) I'm I'm not interested in a manicured lawn. Yeah, That's just much effort for me. That's not particularly a look that I want for this house. I have 30 acres here and 15 of it is in pasture. I guess you would say that's my lawn. Gets cut about once a month in the summertime. Do you have animals grazing the land? I do not because animals are a lot of work. Yes. They say if you have land and you have animals, you're never bored, but you also can never leave. There were about 31 head of cattle on the property when I bought it. Property was overloaded. They were restricted to probably about 12 acres of the 30, and they overgrazed it. They had that grass cut down really low. You also have to mend fences, and I've got two beautiful streams that have almost pure drinking water in them that flow into a major trout stream close by. Animals were not going to work here. They weren't mine. They were a local farmer's, and he took them away. I have a quote attributed to you. That the villa is not a destination. It is the starting point. What is your vision from this starting point? I've created this incredible house that literally transforms you. Because I'm, I I guess you would call me semi-retired. I'm certainly retired from the 
garden design business. I do run an Airbnb in the mill house that was on the property. It's at the front of the property. But my goal is a starting point to create a notable house and garden here in Georgia. Tell us more about your transition from a city gardener to a country gardener. I was a second generation Atlantan. I started my gardening career when I was very young. I can remember going with my father into the vegetable garden that was behind his antique shop on East Paces Ferry in Buckhead and pulling carrots and radishes. He liked to garden and farm. Actually, his father, my grandfather, was a truck farmer in Florida and owned orange groves in Bradenton. Gardening has always been in my family. That's my father's side, my mother's side. Her father came from Greensboro, Georgia, and grew up on a farm, and he became a major surgeon in the city. Mother was a gardener. My aunt was a gardener. My grandmother was a gardener, and they were all in garden clubs. I couldn't escape gardening if I wanted to. What happened is when we moved to Chastain Park and my maternal grandmother died, I befriended the older woman that lived across the street. Goody was her name. She was always out in her yard gardening, and I would ride my bicycle over and inadvertently ride my bicycle through her flower beds. People ask me, how did you get into gardening? And I tell them through the penal system. <laughs> I rode my bicycle through her beds, and I was punished by helping her haul horse manure from the Chastain stables. <laughs> she taught me to organic garden when Rodell was just starting to come out with Organic Gardening Magazine and those ideas. That was in the early 70s. We would use leaves and grass. It was funny because she and I would fight. There was one neighbor down the street that had this absolutely gorgeous zoysia lawn and would cut it and put all those clippings in a bag. And she and I would fight over who would get to them first <laughs> because we wanted them for the gardens. We would make compost piles and we would mulch and we'd pick up leaves and we'd get horse manure. She's the one that taught me to dig a $5 hole for a five-cent plant. Is that the point you became a farmer? A gardener. At that point, I was really interested in birds. There was a friend of mine and I, and we were interested in birds. Went down to the country where his grandmother lived and would go out into the country and look for birds. And I can remember that day that the switch got flipped. And I was sitting there next to a beaver pond in Harrelson County, Georgia. And I looked over and there was this beautiful white daisy-like flower blooming. Never seen anything like it. It was kind of like Persephone and the asphodel. I had a knapsack and a trowel and uh, no, I didn't have a trowel. I had my hands and I just dug it up and put it in my knapsack and took it home. And it was a bloodroot, Guanaria canadensis. Thus started my collection of native wildflowers. That morphed into planting a hummingbird garden for the birds. It was successful the first year. After that, it just took off. When did the farmer switch get flipped? I've always loved growing a little bit of food for myself. Everybody wants to grow the $47 tomato. I would grow some tomatoes. I had an apartment in a building on East Paces Ferry, not far from my father's antique shop. It had long been gone, and I enclosed the courtyard there and turned it into a garden and started growing vegetables. I think the bug that bit me for vegetables was when I worked for Ryan Ganey. We did an exhibit at the Southeastern Flower Show called Mr. Skinner's Vegetable Garden that was based on the idea of a World War II veteran that had been in France. After the war, he had remained and he toured the Chateau de la Villandrie, which is that amazing property where all the beds are laid out in patterns and planted with vegetables. 
cabbages and lettuces and things of that sort. We took that garden as inspiration and created this wonderful, charming, southern enclosed garden that was inspired by a French chateau. It all had the lettuces and the sweet peas and everything laid out in patterns and stuff. I think that really inspired me. I started that sort of garden at the apartment building in Buckhead, and then it just sort of followed me the rest of my life. But I never really had enough room to really do it right. In 2008, when the economy turned and my business took a little bit of a nosedive, I had to find something. I always had the dream of having a vegetable farm because at that point I was heavily involved with Georgia Organics and knew some people that were doing that. I was aspiring to be an organic farmer. When the economy turned, I decided I would call a friend of mine that lived in Powder Springs that had six acres. We were going to start a farm. She had the land. She had the tractor. We started farming. Just sat here this afternoon while I waited for four o'clock and planted some tomato seeds. And it brought back the memory. That first year, we planted 300 tomato plants of 75 different varieties. Had more tomatoes than we knew what to do with. I couldn't find a market quick enough to sell them. And we were throwing them away and it was breaking my heart. That did not work out, but at the same time, there was a new restaurant that had opened up near my house in Reynoldstown that was called Homegrown. The owner came to me, and he wanted a vegetable garden out back, and I laughed at him because it was an old home site that was covered with broken glass and hypodermic needles and God knows what. And I looked at him and said, really, you want me to grow food in that? And I looked at him, and I said, how much money have you got? And his wife said, we need to talk. <laughs> Anyway, I turned that garden, that plot of land, into an incredibly productive little garden that provided food for that restaurant. What made that garden so productive? The soil. It's always the soil. I learned that working with Goody. If you prepare the soil, even in Georgia where we have this just what people think is horrible red clay, don't think of it as horrible. You just need the key to unlock it. Georgia red clay is really full of minerals and a lot of iron. The problem is the plasticity of the soil. That needs to be unlocked. And it's an ionization. It's a chemical process. When people say, I don't know what to do with all this Georgia red clay. Well, first, you need to start adding humus to it. Second, you need the key to unlock it, which is gypsum. You used to be able to buy gypsum at Home Depot and Lowe's for about $6 a bag. Then when the construction industry took off, they took all the gypsum for sheetrock and stopped putting it into the garden centers. Or maybe nobody was buying it or they didn't know what to do with it. But you can get it at a farm supply store, pelletized like lime. It breaks up the clay. It releases the ions in the clay and makes the clay friable. I can't tell you how many houses where clients have called and it's new construction. It's absolutely some of the worst soil you've ever seen. The garden's going to struggle for about two or three years. Until you reintroduce the microorganisms into the soil, and the only way to do that is break up that clay and get something to feed them, which is going to be the humus. The number one thing that I use always, and I still use it here today, is mushroom compost. Not black cow. It's called Gardener's Choice Mushroom Compost. A number of years ago, I had a couple of clients complain, said, this stuff smells horrendous. I said, if it doesn't stink, you don't want it because it's got chicken manure in it. For a while, they took that product and they baked it to kill the smell, but then they killed all the microorganisms. So what good was it? 
It had eight different things in it. It still had good product. It had chicken manure and chicken feathers and bone meal and blood meal and lime and gypsum and peat moss and all that. But it was the activity in that soil that was so important. I would watch that absolutely change the composition of the soil and thus the productivity of the garden. I'm not talking about necessarily a vegetable garden. I'm talking about a flower garden, a shrub garden, whatever. When you get that life back in the soil, you're going to watch those plants take a jump in about two or three years. Those beds at homegrown, the first thing I did was break up the soil, add the gypsum. I added granite sands to it for micronutrients, did a little topsoil, and then I went, I got truckloads of mushroom compost, worked it into those beds. I also ordered some mycorrhizal fungus for vegetables from fungi perfecti out of Oregon which comes in a powder. I would put it in an English watering can, mix it up, and I would water it onto the bed to inoculate the beds. How do you determine the rate of gypsum and mushroom compost? People always ask me this, and I know Walter Reese would just kill me. People are always like, well, how much lime do you put in, and do you do a soil test? What I learned from my early teacher, Goody Davis, about soil preparation were basically organic principles that Rodale had been teaching. I don't know if she read Rodale's books or not. I was unaware of them and I did not read them, but she just basically taught me the principles of how to build soil using greens and your browns your composts and your leaf material and your grass clippings and things of that sort to amend the hole. What we would do is dig a $5 hole for a five-cent plant, overdevelop it. That's how I learned to prepare soil. When it came to building my own house here in Demarest, I had a really wonderful guy that did the excavation. When we started, he understood that you could not use grass as backfill that it would eventually rot or that it wouldn't rot and that it would compress and collapse. And so you you certainly didn't want to push that back. What he didn't understand at the beginning is that this was going to be about a two-year process. He scraped all the grass off and put it in one pile. The house is built in a pasture that's probably been in cattle for over 100 years. The prairie ecosystems in the United States have some of the most rich topsoil and the thickest topsoil in the United States. I think out in Kansas, some of the prairie topsoil measures at three feet. I was looking at about three to six inches here, which is pretty good for Georgia, considering it had been grassland that long with grazing animals on it. He scraped that off and put that in a pile. Then he took the subsoil and scraped that off and put that in a separate pile. And of course, there were this enormous amount of rocks that came out, anything from the size of a ping pong ball to the size of a truck. I think there was 30 tons of stone came out of the foundation of this house. And that was all put in a pile. Was then later used to build steps and walls, built a wonderful stacked stone wall in the front on both sides to help edge that. And that stone has aged beautifully. People ask me about doing soil tests. I know there are people in the agricultural field and in the cooperative extension agency and all that would just string me up for this. But I think I've only done a soil test twice in my life. I just have never felt the need to because it really doesn't sync with my philosophy about soil. What we did here is when Tim scraped off all the soil, he got down to subsoil because the site is so steep that every time you take a step on this property, you go down a foot in elevation almost. 
the back of the house comes up out of the ground. There's a three-story side of the house, and then the terrace comes out 13 feet on one side and seven on the other. And on the other side of the house, the house is dug into the hillside. What he did is he took the soil all the way down to the subsoil. Just for interest and laughs, I sent a soil sample off to the Cooperative Extension Agency at the University of Georgia to have it tested just to see what they would say. And much to my amazement, Craig, that soil sample came back absolutely perfect. I'd never seen a soil sample do that, but I knew that was ridiculous. Chemically, it was perfect, but life-wise, it was dead. There was no life in it. There was no bacteria, no fungus. No mycorrhizal fungus, nothing, no worms, no bugs, no humus, no compost, nothing. It was red dirt and it was perfect. And I thought this proves how, I hate to say this, ridiculous and useless a soil test can be. I knew what I needed to do. There were a number of tree companies around here and I had them start to bring me the loads of tree chips. I made friends with the guys down at the water department who were in charge of picking up all the leaves in Demarest with a vacuum truck. We're one of these unusual cities where you don't have to bag your leaves. You simply rake them to the street. This big vacuum truck comes and it grinds them all up and throws them in the back of a truck. And they would bring me the absolute most beautiful ground up leaves, then would compost down very quickly. I would work that back into the soil. So when they came to backfill, it was a different guy that he was to take the subsoil and put it first. That point, the grass had rotted and the topsoil and mixed those two and put that down last is about a six to eight inch layer around the house. He did that, have the start of some good soil. Thought I would grow some vegetables outside the kitchen window just to begin with before I got my gardens laid out. I brought some of those rotting tree chips and some of that compost because I've got 15 acres in grass, I would have hay. Started mixing that all in and like Goody would teach me in sort of what they would call a lasagna method in which you do them in layers. And then I started planting in it. First year was reasonable. Then, of course, every year thereafter, I continually have amended the soil and added more compost and more humus. Two main ingredients that I always added to my clients' gardens, regardless of any soil test or anything. We live in the South. Oak trees, pine forest, people put down pine bark, they put down pine straw. We have a very high acid content in our soil. pH is low. I say high acid, but amazingly enough, the pH would be low, somewhere around three or four. The lower the pH, less likely the plants are going to be able to draw up the nutrients. What attracted you to landscape architecture? I thought, you know, maybe I'll go into art because I'm very creative and artistic. And then somebody said, well, have you thought about landscape architecture? That is the perfect artistic blending of design and the use of plant material. I went into the School of Environmental Design at the University of Georgia, which was a five-year program, and excelled. I was dean's list every quarter. According to one of the professors that had been there for 20 years, I was one of the most promising students to come out of that school in years. That's what happened. I left and went into the real world and actually came out at a really bad time in a recession in like 1985 or 86. The market was really, really bad and I was having a hard time finding a job. I ended up taking a job at an an engineering firm that absolutely bored me to tears. I ended up designing planting designs for Kmart's in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And you might as well gouge my eyes out with a sharp stick. It was a complete waste of my skill. 
I got headhunted to another business that was out in Canton that was a designed build thing and did residential design. The owners hobbled my creativity. They didn't want anything creative. They wanted the basic stuff. They wanted what they did and what they did well, which I just found very uninteresting. Actually, it was the only job that I was ever fired from. I think they were actually intimidated by me. But anyway, they fired me and a friend of mine to help me feel better took me lunch and said, I've got a surprise for you. And after lunch, she said, now I've got the surprise. I said, what's that? She said, we're going to see Ryan Ganey's Garden in Decatur. I said, how'd you wrangle this? She said, I just picked up the phone and called him. I met Ryan Ganey and then I ended up working for Ryan for two years. That's when I knew garden design was what I really wanted to do. And I didn't know that there was anybody that did that. There wasn't anybody doing garden design per se. There were landscape architects and landscape architecture firms, but there were no garden design firms. And I think Ryan was the first one to actually bring that profession to Atlanta. And actually, he wasn't, he didn't, he wasn't even trained in that. He had a horticulture degree from Clemson. He hired me to do the drawings and put his ideas on paper and oversee the proposals, the installation of these gardens. We did some pretty amazing work in Atlanta, in Long Island, and in France. I got to meet some of the most incredible, really, I mean, Penelope Hobhouse and Rosemary Veery, Christopher Lloyd, and all these great English garden designers, and people would come and lecture, and people would come and visit Ryan's garden. And being his personal assistant, I was exposed to all these people. It was an amazing education. I worked for him for two years and then went out on my own with my own company, which was Fine Gardens Incorporated. Ran that for about 25 years. What else would you like to learn and experience in the gardening world? I don't want to sound like I'm jaded, Craig, but I'll continue to learn my plants. I'll continue to hone my gardening skills. I'm always open to learning about new plants. I was a garden designer in Atlanta for almost 30 years. This garden here in Demarest will be the last great garden that I ever do. After I graduated from the University of Georgia as a gift, my aunt gave me a trip to Europe for the summer. I traveled all over England, Italy, and everywhere in between studying garden design. So I've seen many of the great gardens. I would probably like to go back and see some of the newer ones that I haven't seen because there are a lot of new gardens out there. I saw the classic ones like Sissinghurst and Hidcote and Great Dixter and and things of that sort. But there are a number of really good new gardens that have come out. A lot of those garden designers I was exposed to at Chelsea Flower Show in London when I worked there. I think I would like to go and see some of those gardens. But, you know, honestly, I'm perfectly happy piddling here and working in my own garden. You're exposed to all these great gardens. How did that influence your garden design? When people say, what is your philosophy of garden design? I say it's classical. And a lot of people shy away from that because they think that's formal. And that's not it. I used to give a lecture to garden clubs called What is a Garden? In which we would deconstruct the various aspects of a garden and look at the various elements. And it's how you choose those elements and what you do with them that defines what your garden is going to look like and feel like. Of course, that's always based on how much time and effort you want to put into it and how much money you've got and and resources and things of that sort. Whenever I would go to a client's garden, whether it was an established garden or not, the first thing I would look at was the structure. What is the structure of this garden? Like Audrey Hepburn, beauty is all about good bones. Rosemary Veary said, if your garden looks good in January, it can't help but look good in July. 
I always started with the structure. And even if the garden had good structure, I would look at it to see if it needed to be refined or added to based on what the client wanted. And then we would go from there. There's two ways you can add structure to a garden, horticulturally or architecturally. Horticulturally would be like hedges, tall hedges, short hedges, like little boxwood hedges, or a tall hedge, like a clipped Leyland hedge or cryptomerias that would screen out a neighbor and enclose an area. Use some of your structure horticulturally. And then architecturally, it would be, is it a fence? Is it a wall? What are those fences and walls going to look like? Is it just going to be a basic fence from Home Depot? Or are we going to get a nice custom fence in here that's going to be really beautiful that we can grow roses and clematis on or something of that sort? All of those elements play into it. The other thing about classical garden design is punctuation points. Is it a statue? Is it an urn? Is it a bird bath? Is it a sundial? Is there a place to sit? Is your focal point a bench? Is it a plant? Is it some sort of object that you absolutely love and adore? The garden should always, always, always reflect the person who owns it, their personal taste. That's what I used to tell my clients. I said, when we go into the discussion, there would always be that moment in which I would have to stop the consultation and say, there's something you need to understand. Three very important things. And they would get this very concerned look on their face. I'd say, this is not my garden. I'm not going to look at it every day and I'm not paying for it. You need to tell me exactly what you want so I can give it to you. My ego is not involved here. I'm not going to come in here and tell you what you need to have or what you should do. There were a couple of instances where I strongly suggested to a client that this element needs to be here and this is why. Thank goodness in those cases they listened because it was absolutely the right element that was needed. That's the way I approach it. Water needs to be in the garden, light and romance and fragrance and a place to sit. A lot of people are not gardening so much as they're landscaping because what they're doing is they're turning their gardens into outdoor entertainment spaces. Gardens look a little bit different today than they used to, say, 30 years ago. There's not so much the focus on the plant material and the horticulture is so much as a usable outdoor entertaining space. There's no reason it can't be decorated with beautiful plants that wow the senses and transport your guests. There's nothing more beautiful than a fence covered with Confederate jasmine when it's in bloom. It's intoxicating or sitting outside and all of a sudden your guests go, oh, my God, that wasn't here when I got here. What's that? It's a moon vine that you've run up your arbor or something. Simple as a $2 pack of moon vine seeds can be absolutely enthralling in August when they flower. Those are the types of things I like to interject into a garden. Do you think we have passed the heyday of a plant-focused garden? When Ryan started the English country style and everybody wanted delphiniums and lupins and all of that sort of thing and armloads of peonies, what I learned when I went and studied those gardens is how they put those gardens together. I was enthralled by the plants, but then I came back and realized the reason we didn't have those plants here is because they simply wouldn't grow here. They wouldn't tolerate our wet winters. They wouldn't tolerate our dry summers, and they certainly wouldn't tolerate the heat and the humidity. What Ryan taught me is that we've got to choose plants that work here that will give you the same look as an English garden's. Instead of delphiniums, we grew larkspur. Instead of lupins, we grew baptisia. Back to your question, do I think the heyday of that sort of gardening? Yes, I think it's come and gone. I don't think people are focused on that anymore. There will always be people who are keen gardeners, who are keen horticulturalists and are always interested in that. I certainly have a wide circle of friends who are those people. 
the work that I'm seeing done in Atlanta nowadays. I know several friends who are garden designers, and I know some young people that are coming along. The work they're doing simply doesn't really involve that complex of a plant palette. Even the growers that I've dealt with, like Saul's Nursery, for 30 years, they don't grow half the things they used to. And they certainly don't experiment with them like they used to. And and I know Bobby's gotten up in age. And I asked him, I said, why are you not growing all that? He said, nobody's interested in them anymore. He said, we would grow them and they'd sit here and nobody would buy them. And he looked at me and laughed and said, you and Ryan and a few others were the only people that bought them. Not to hurt your feelings, but you didn't buy enough of them, so it didn't warrant us growing them started to grow my own. And then, of course, with the advent of the internet and online shopping, you can buy just about anything online. Do you buy a lot of things for your garden online now? Oh, I got the buy it now button all the time. I get in such trouble. Talked about my Instagram account, my Facebook account, and I posted a picture the other day on Instagram of a box of plants, actually lily bulbs that had arrived. And the caption said, and the madness has begun. The box of dahlia tubers from the West Coast arrived today. I'm expecting another box from King Mums to arrive shortly with chrysanthemum cuttings. Lord, I can't remember if I ordered it. It's like Christmas. I don't, I don't know what I ordered, so it's always a surprise when I open the box. The way that plants are sold today has really changed. It has. You would hardly ever buy anything from California. I guess you'd get things from Oregon. It just depends on what the plant is and who has it. It's not always good to buy a plant from Oregon or something because they're not really acclimated to bring all these plants in from California and Oregon. And it wasn't that they wouldn't survive here. It's just that the way they grew them and the soil they used and something about it, like the rhododendrons and things, they just never made it. And it was like, hmm, I'm wondering if the mycorrhizal fungus over there is different than here and why aren't these things surviving? And a lot of my really astute gardening friends, would literally take all the soil off of the plant and force it to integrate with our soil here and found that they thrived a whole lot better. You asked about where people buy plants. I'm going to be very critical. Home Depot and Lowe's have dumbed us down. I am just shocked every year at the plant material that's brought into these big box stores. Every year, every spring, they bring in what I call are empty calories. They bring on all this beautiful color and stuff that isn't going to make it through the end of May. It's just not. Petunias just don't grow here. People go out and buy those baskets by the truckload. And I'm just like, really, you just spent $15 on that basket of petunias and it ain't going to make it through June. Just not. The heat's going to kill it. There are types of species petunias that will certainly make it through now. I'm not knocking the wave petunias that are in the planting beds in commercial things, but they've become overdone. I'm certainly not going to have a basket of wave petunias. And that's the other thing. There's just simply not enough soil in that basket for that plant to live much past June or July because two or three missed waterings and it's toast. I think that's what they're counting on. They're counting on you buying it. It's going to be an impulse buy and you're going to take it home and you're going to kill it and you're going to feel bad about it and not take it back because you killed it. Then you go around and buy another one the next year. I have seen some things with like Monrovia does bring in some stuff, some agapanthus and some unusual things. The shrub selection is the same thing. It's nothing terribly exciting or adventurous. And I know colored shrubs have been very popular and I think they're really, really, really hard to integrate into your average landscape now in a garden 
aspect where they can be mixed with other plants to create magnificent color combinations, I think they're very serviceable. I think we're going to end up with a Disney-type landscape, very Mickey Mouse with lots of color all over the place, that rather jarring, and then you bring in these dyed mulches and things. I'm sorry, it looks like the circus is in town. We're not focusing on the whole. We're just focusing on that singular plant or that singular element. We are. And not see how to bring it all together. Exactly. And how is yellow privet going to work in our landscape with red mulch? We've got a McDonald's moment going on here. Jarring yellow and jarring red. How are we going to integrate that? Maybe we contrast it with a purple clematis that scrambles up through it. Maybe we take those yellow privets and we clip them into spheres into balls and they become architectural and structural and there's several of them that move throughout the landscape so they create this repetition of shape and color and form. I think that plant could be very serviceable if it was used in the right way. Just see them dotted around with no thought or reason. See a lot of grasses being used. You look out on the highway and there's a lot of mullenbergias and a, a lot of panicums being used. Thank God they've gotten away from the pampas grass and some of the miscanthus. Daggio is a very serviceable one. After about four or five years, when that plant becomes very congested and overgrown, who's going to go out there on the side of the highway and dig those up and divide them? That's just not going to happen. I don't think they're thinking this through completely. You're right. That's a big issue. I didn't even thought about that aspect of it. What's your latest garden epiphany? Epiphany? I don't have enough space. (laughs) (laughs) No, I have enough space. I have 30 acres. And what I was telling a good friend of mine today who stopped by with his wife and two kids on their way to Asheville is restraint. I think that's what I have learned moving here. It's like you're a kid in a candy store or let's put it on an adult level. Okay, you have a platinum credit card and they say you can go to Pikes and buy whatever you want. What do you do? Do you buy everything in the store? Then where are you going to put it when you get home? Have you thought about it or did you just buy it because you had to have it and loved it? As I used to say, having a horticultural moment. We all have horticultural moments. We go to the nurseries in the spring. We get excited. We see something we love. We load up the trunk and then we get home and go, oh, dear God, where am I going to put this? Goody always taught me, don't go to a nursery and buy something unless you've thought about the place that you have for it. You know, look at the place that you've got and then go find the plant for it instead of buy the plant and find the place. I'm just as guilty of it as anybody else. Craig, when I bought 30 acres, I realized that I'm not getting any younger. I could literally work myself to death here. I restrained myself to just around the house. Some of the plantings around the house are exceedingly simple that I don't have to fuss with them. And there's a little bit of fussy areas, but not much. I dare say it's only about twice the size that was my garden in Atlanta. That house was on three quarters of an acre. Have an acre and a quarter, acre and a half, maybe, maybe that I take care of. Probably not even that. Probably only about a half acre or an acre of really intensive garden. Everything else is very simple and big sweeps of things. Thousands of daffodils. I just installed an alley going down the hill that's got some grasses and some shrubs and some plants that the deer won't eat. And that's it. Just those simple grasses marching down the hill for... 150 yards have made quite a statement that I've been impressed with. And all I did was use grass, giant miscanthus that gets 12 feet tall. Then the focal point at the end was a golden dawn redwood that I have since put daffodils under. So you look down this long alley of these dried brown grasses and hear this beautiful golden tree with these beautiful yellow and orange daffodils under it. 
people, I've created a moment that's very simple and it doesn't take hardly any. So my epiphany is I'm not Superman and I do have limitations. I really have been able to restrain myself. That's a change from your Atlanta garden? Oh, yeah. Even though I had lived on three quarters of an acre and there was a a house in the middle of it, my mother walked out on the deck after I bought it and she said, this isn't enough room. I said, mother, I put six plants where most people put one and I garden five days a week for other people. She said, yeah, I guess that's enough. I packed that garden full of plants till it was full. And I still would go and have a horticultural moment and bring something back and try and find a spot for it. I don't do that so much here anymore. Somebody offered me a plant the other day and I was like, nope, don't want it. He said, oh, come on. I said, nope, don't want it. Don't have any spot for it. It's all filled up. Yeah. What about your most valuable garden mistake? Oh my God. Most valuable garden mistake? It's called the compost pile. I kill things and that's how we learn. We buy a plant that we treasure. We really, really want it and we talk ourselves into it and we splurge. We kill it. It's like, okay, I obviously didn't do this right. So let's do this again. There's the old saying that it takes three times before you get it right. It's probably my most valuable garden mistake. Don't give up. Don't give up. I love to take a plant that may be ordinary, like that golden privet, clip it into a ball and use it marching down through a garden on either side of a pathway to create a rhythm like I talked about. Take something that is common and ordinary and turn it into something that's unexpected and exciting. Everybody hates ugly Agnes, Ily Agnes. I grew up with it as a child. Unfortunately, I had love hate with it and I had to go to therapy for it. There was one growing next to our house when I was a child and my mother would make me pick a switch and it had to come off the Ily Agnes bush. (laughs) I hated Ily Agnes for the longest time until I found out it bloomed in the fall and was fragrant. It was absolutely wonderful. I've used that as a screen in the shade. Somebody, they live in a neighborhood and there's woods behind them and you can see everybody else's house and there's some trees with some low-hanging branches and we would plant Ily Agnes and train the Ily Agnes up into the trees like a vine to help create a screen. Then it bloomed and there was the fragrance in the fall. So I took an ordinary plant that most people hated and used it in an extraordinary way. One time I used it at Client's Garden as an aerial hedge to block out an unsightly view in the background. One time I used it as a wall shrub on the house. We kept it clipped against the house. She called me up and she said, I have looked everywhere in this garden and I cannot find where that fragrance is coming from. I said, it's the Ily Agnes on the house. She said, what? I said, yes, that's why we put it up there by the terrace. Don't be afraid to garden. Don't be afraid to experiment. Don't be afraid to buy that plant you don't know anything about. Google is at your hand with your phone now, and you can look it up instantly and figure it out. That's what gardening's all about, is finding something new and exciting and uh, always looking forward to the next spring or the next summer or the next fall. Or even in my case, I absolutely adore winter. It gives me a rest, and I have a number of really wonderful, charming winter plants that I absolutely adore. Tell us about those. How do you get the winter interest in your garden? It can start as soon as the native witch hazel that blooms October or November. Of course, everybody loves winter daphnes, which I cannot grow. Too cold here. Is that the daphne adore? Yeah, Daphne Odora and Daphne Odora variegata. Most people say, oh, I can't grow those. They live about four or five years and then they die. Well, I jokingly call that up and die disease. But (laughs) I also tell them, good for you. You got a Daphne to live five years? That's great. So what you do is if you love Daphne, every other year you go get another one and put it somewhere else. Because you know in about five years, that one over there is going to croak on you. 
that's just the way it is. It's no different than going and getting geraniums every year to put around your swimming pool. They die and you go get more. Go get another Daphne. I grow snowdrops. I have never given up my behavior of rescuing plants. A friend of mine called me from Atlanta and said, I found this house over in Druid Hills. The people died, and I think it's they're renovating, and it's getting ready to come up for sale. And he said, there's some snowdrops in the garden. And I said, well, are they Galanthus nivalis? Are they growing in clumps? And he didn't really know. And I said, well, would you get me two or three clumps? He said, well, you just need to come down here and look at this. At that point, moving things out of my house in East Atlanta, getting ready to sell it. And we went over in the evening to this house. The people that had owned it originally died, and so the children had it, and they were going to put it up for sales. The new owner was definitely going to come in and do something. It needed some serious updating. Goody taught me this. It's called snitching. You go and you snitch these plants because you just do. I just told everybody I'm a thief. But anyway, we pulled up, and it was dusk, and I got out in front of this house, looked at it, and I just about fell out, Craig. Far as the eye could see, there was at least 50,000 Galanthus LWCI, which isn't even supposed to grow here. They were underneath the shrubs and they were in the lawn and they were everywhere. Like, holy crap. I have never seen anything like this. I've had this plant in my garden in East Atlanta for four or five years and it never looked like this. Never. I've never seen it like this. I've actually never seen snowdrops look like this in Atlanta at all. It was my guess that they were originally planted when the house was built and the house was almost 100 years old. They just seeded themselves around the garden. Owners loved them and didn't mind them and just let them do whatever they wanted to. We started digging and I dug and dug and dug and dug and dug and brought them up here and put them under two of my magnificent white oaks and they have multiplied like rabbits and they are so happy probably got about 6,000 of them. When they start blooming in late December, there is a white blanket of snowdrops under those oaks for about two and a half months that bring me great joy. Yeah, I think so. Cyclamen. I love cyclamen, heretifolium. I've always wanted to have a massive sweep of them like they have in England. I started buying them. I started buying the bulbs. I found a company in Nebraska. They're not cheap. Sold them wholesale. Probably bought about two or $300 worth of cyclamen and started putting them underneath that maple. And they since have started to multiply. Bought cyclamen coom that just finished their cycle. They start blooming at the end of January and bloom January, February, March. They finish out, but the foliage on the cyclamen are stunning. And there's a number of winter flowering shrubs that are also really wonderful, but it's mostly the simple things, the foliages and things of that sort, and the delicate flowers that I appreciate. There's some primroses out there blooming now that have been in bloom for about a month. I uh, didn't know that I could grow primroses, but Goodness Grows has a particular variety they call Lexington that they found in Lexington, Georgia, that seems to come back reliably every year. Would you tell us what it's like building a garden at the Chelsea Flower Show? Going to Gardener's Heaven. <laughs> I used to give a lecture called Inside the Chelsea Flower Show, the greatest flower show on earth. I can remember when I was in the middle of my business in Atlanta and a friend of mine said, we're going to go to the Chelsea Flower Show. I'm going to get tickets and we're going to find somebody to stay with and we're going. So we went and I was blown away. It's like every gardener's wildest dream to go to the Chelsea Flower Show in London in May. I went, I think I went once or twice, and then can't even remember the year anymore, was the Fox Hall Flower Show in the south of Atlanta. That's where I met Marnie Hall. 
She was an English garden designer that had been brought over to help organize that. Foxhall Flower Show was to be the American version of Chelsea. It was being sponsored by a very wealthy man and Home Depot. I met Marnie at that first inaugural Foxhall Flower Show where I was doing a garden. Then she invited me to come over and help her actually that June. Foxhall was in April. I went over in June or late June, early July to the Hampton Court Palace Flower Show, which is very similar to the Chelsea Flower Show, but not quite as publicized because it's not a royal event. They go to Ascot instead of to Hampton Court. Helped her do that. It was at that show that she met a gentleman who ended up becoming a sponsor for a Chelsea garden. And she called me up the week after Hampton Court and said, what do you fancy coming over and helping me do a Chelsea show? I about passed out on the floor. I said, absolutely. She said, now, He's not going to pay you, but he'll pay for your flight and your room and board. I said, that's fine. That's fine. Perfect. But not a problem. I'll be there. I went and I worked really, really hard. I dare say I worked harder than some of those English guys. They would go off for a cigarette break and some tea and say, are you going to come? I said, no, I got to get this planting done. The world's coming to see this garden in five days and we're not anywhere close. That one got us another sponsor, and that sponsor did three gardens. And then she called me and said, I've got another sponsor, and went and helped with another one. Not only one, I think I did five or six flower shows with her. It's a lot of hard work. I remember doing the forehead garden, Merlin de Medicine, which was a phenomenal garden. And I was there for 10 days. We put in a 1,000 plants a day in that garden. I spent most of my day on my knees had assistants that would ferry me plants, take the pots away, would be like an old-fashioned typewriter. I'd go back and forth and back and forth. And of course, I'd get up and give my knees a rest. And of course, we'd have tea breaks and bathroom breaks and lunch breaks. 10,000 plants in 10 days is a lot. Got to stay on it. The most amazing thing to me, I think, was the greatest compliment. We never won gold medal. We won silver, silver gilt, and bronze. The bronze was an insult, and I won't go into that one, but the greatest compliment I took away from that experience was the Garden of Dreams that we did for the Forehead Company. It was the last garden we did. Marnie always did have a lot of native British wildflowers in it, which I don't know very well, and I certainly don't know what sort of ecosystems they grow in and what sort of plant associations. Marnie would say, I'm going to have you plant the woodland today. And I'd look at her and say, you know, I don't know a thing about this. And she said, yes, you do. Intuitively, I would be able to plant these plants in the right situation because you would be marked off by the judges if the plants were not in their right associations. I mean, they went over this garden with a fine tooth comb. We did not win gold that year. And Marnie did challenge that with the judges. When she went to have the interview with the judges about the medal that they awarded us, they started off and said, Madam, this is the finest wild planting we have ever seen at Chelsea. It absolutely is perfection and there are no flaws. That was the greatest compliment that I could take from my experience at Chelsea. That and being in spitting distance from the Queen. <laughs> I want to bring out, hey, Madge, but uh, I didn't think that would have was appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> what is your off time like? You know, you would think I wouldn't have any time to myself, Craig. I've actually volunteered to help restore a local cemetery called the Old Clarksville Cemetery. It's on Facebook. You can look it up. I'm in charge pretty much of the Instagram account for that. It's a little half-acre cemetery that was started in 1831. I'm actually restoring the historic planting over there. 
my off time, there were three non-negotiables when I built this house. One was a tile roof. One was a wood-burning fireplace because I'd always wanted one. And the third one was a swimming pool. It's the swimming pool that makes me stop my day in the summertime. I will absolutely stop and get a beer and get in the pool. It's a good thing I work from sunup to sundown, and that helps me stop my day in the summer. In the winter, it gets dark and I have to come in. That's when I get in trouble and start looking at plant catalogs and stuff online and ordering plants. I do go to Atlanta and visit friends and visit their gardens and visit them. Of course, talk to a lot of friends on the phone and watch stuff on Netflix. I just finished, I know it's been out for years, but it was a documentary on Frank Cabot and his garden in Quebec, which I had not seen, which was I thought was absolutely brilliant. There's some podcasts and other things I watch. There's Monty Don's show. I've watched some of that on Netflix. I really love Monty Don, and I actually met him at Chelsea. I'm a gardener, and that's who I am, and that's what I do. I do like to travel. I do like to eat. I like to cook. I like to entertain. I like my friends. It's not always garden, 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 but the majority of my time is spent gardening. Do you have a favorite tree? Well, it depends on what the season is and what we're doing. You'd asked me that before, and I thought about that. I love Styrax japonica in late April, May. I really, really like my Lombardi poplars up my driveway. I know they're considered a trash tree. They turn beautiful golden in the fall, and their leaves dance in the wind. I just bought one that has a white bark and white on the backs of the leaves. My mother adored dogwoods, particularly pink dogwoods, so I've been trying desperately to get pink dogwoods to survive. But, you know, we suffer with such bad anthracnose here that I've had a hard time. I bought some new interspecial crosses to see if I can't get one to do. I absolutely adore my ancient white oaks. We estimate their age between 300 and 350 years old. I love my majestic trees. I just bought a Magnolia Selangiana yellow bird, a yellow flowering magnolia. I have dug native beaches out of the woods and used them as a clipped hedge at the end of the garden. I love that effect. I have a golden leaf catalpa, you know, just an old catalpa worm tree that people in the country would grow catalpa trees and go pick the worms off of them to go fishing. This one's got golden leaves on it, which I absolutely love. And long about August, here come the worms and they eat all the leaves off of it in a matter of about four days. The good news is it leaves right back out with beautiful golden leaves again. I have a golden locust, a Robinia pseudo acacia freesia, which I absolutely adore in the spring when it leaves out. I love my Italian cypress because they make this place look like Italy. So that's some of my favorite trees. How about a shrub? You know, I was just talking to a friend this morning, and you would think this is a rather common thing, but actually it's not. It's an azalea, but it's a spider azalea. It's a split petal azalea, and I cannot pronounce the Japanese name, but I have both the lavender and the white, and I'm looking forward to them getting large. I really like my viburnum macrocephalum. It's starting to come out. The flowers come out that chartreuse green and then go white, and then they shatter. Ryan and I used to know this plant. There used to be one in Buckhead that I tried to get cuttings off of and I never could get it to take, which was a double, double file viburnum. That would be viburnum placatum placatum or viburnum placatum grandiflorum. Common name would be snowball bush, but that's all the viburnums that have globular white flowers are called snowballs. So that's not really going to work. But I was actually able to find this one. 
gets to be rather large. It could get to be eight, 10 feet tall and 12 feet across. And it just literally weeps with these snowballs. It's just covered with them. But that comes after the Chinese snowball. I actually like old garden roses. Belinda's Dream is a favorite of mine. I'm fond of, oddly enough, Altheus. Good old Rose of Sharon. I've got some white ones. My friend commented today, he said, what are those fast digit shrubs over there in the garden? I said, they're not really fast digit, meaning upright. I said, that's an Althea, and I just stuck a stake down in the middle of it and tied the branches upright. And he just laughed. He said, that's amazing. I said, they bloom all summer and they're gorgeous. There's a double purple one that I particularly love. I love the stark juxtaposition of that purple against my orange house. I've actually fallen in love recently with crepe myrtles, of all things. I've always loved Natchez. There's a number of crepe myrtles around here that I've taken cuttings off of that are a rich sort of peachy pink, a purple one. And there's one in Atlanta that I was always just absolutely in love with. It sits on... West Wesley Road at Peachtree, right next to the Second Ponce de Leon Baptist Church. It is the most beautiful, pale color of pink. Never could find out what the name of it was, and I just thought I was down there November before last, and I pulled over and I just took cuttings off of it, and they've rooted. Now I've got a dilemma, Craig, because I said I'm not going to go out into the landscape, and now where am I going to put all these crepe myrtles? <laughs> never say never, or as the prayer is, God make the words that flow from my mouth be sweet as sugar, because someday I may have to eat them. Yeah. <laughs> well, you got 30 acres. You sound like you got another garden in the works here. There'll be something. It's the 30 acres is like an English romantic landscape, like a capability brown landscape. So I think the crepe myrtles might work well out in the landscape if they don't look too foreign. Yeah. Well, is your love for native plants back as a young gardener, is that carried over to your new place? I still love my wildflowers. I still love my trilliums and my trout lilies and my spring beauties and my anemones. And if y'all come over here and try and dig these up, I swear I'll shoot you dead. I have a clump of yellow lady slippers I've had for 40 years. That's probably my most valuable prized plant that I own. Yeah. I absolutely adore them. And I could kick myself because two years ago, I got onto Facebook to a native orchid site and asked on the site, can you actually fertilize these things? Because I was always terrified I was going to kill them. Well, for 35 years, I only had five plants and only about five or six blooms. Lo and behold, you can fertilize them. And I fertilized them religiously every week during the growing season for two years. And the clump has tripled inside. And if I had fertilized that doggone clump for 40 years, can you imagine how many I would have? I could kick myself. That's my biggest garden regret. Anyway, yes, I do love silver bells. I like amelanchiers. Of course, all my native trees are gorgeous. I actually, one of the packages that came, came from Forest Farms. And in that package was an American holly female clone that has yellow fruit. Do I use native plants extensively? No, but there's some really good ones out there that are well worth using. I absolutely adore snowflake oak leaf hydrangea. There's one that's actually a nursery up here in Georgia, up above me in Dillard, has introduced one called Hayes Pride, H-A-Y-E-S Pride, which is like a double hydrangea, and I have a couple of those. Yes, I still use native plants, but I do love my exotics as well. I try and restrict my use of anything, anything that's invasive. What advice would you have for freshly graduated architects or garden designers? Start a garden. 
your greatest teacher will be a garden. You can look at Michael Durr's book all day long and study your plants, but nothing will teach you quicker than growing them. I can remember one of my valuable lessons. I I was growing a particular plant and I was talking to a friend about it. And I was like complaining bitterly that the plant wasn't doing what it was supposed to do. And I went on for like 10 minutes and blah, blah, blah. And I've done this and I've done this and it's not doing this and it's not doing that. And he laughed. I said, what's so funny? He said, the plant didn't read the book. (laughs) The book's written by people, not the plants. If you're going to be a good garden designer, you better well have a garden of your own because it's your greatest laboratory. And then the other thing is go and look and see. Go to other gardens. Go to other great gardens in the world. Go see what other people have done. And if you can't go, look it up online. Look at the photographs. God forbid that you can even find a gardening book anymore because books are about to become extinct. Go buy some really good old garden books by the great garden designers. Penelope Hobhouse, Rosemary Veery, some of these other people, look at what they did. No, we can't grow those plants, but the design principles are still the same. You will look at something and go, wow, I can use that at Mrs. So-and-so's house to solve this problem. Look and see and study. Don't stick your head in the sand and don't think you know everything. I certainly don't. There's always room for learning something new and trying something new. You're retired, but tell us about what you've got going on now and how people can find you. Well, I'm semi-retired. I still have an Airbnb here that I rent out, which was the original mill house on the property. I'm making my last great garden, which is my own. I hope to literally drop dead working in it. That would be the greatest way to go for me. You can find me on Instagram under Villa Del, D-E-L, Soleil, S-O-L-E, Demarest, because there are other Villa de Soleils. Because I'm in Demarest, that helps to establish that. Villa del Soleil means house of the sun. I am a Leo and a fire sign. That's why I painted the house Georgia red clay orange and a fiery color. Put a lion over the front door, but the house does this really crazy thing that's about to happen. What is today? Today's the 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st, about three days from now on the spring equinox at seven o'clock in the evening. I will open the front door and the back door and the sun will shine right down the middle of the house and come out the front door really is the house of the sun. And no, I did not do that on purpose. It was a complete accident. You can find me on Facebook as Brooks Garcia. And I think that's about the only way you can find me. Everybody wants me to write a book. I said, I'll do that in my spare time between 12 a.m. and 6 a.m. You know, I really probably would have written a book about the building of this house, but all the photographs were done on the phone and they say the pixelation does not translate to the page. If I can't have the photographs to go along with it, I just don't think it's worth it. People still encourage me. Who knows? I may end up doing it one day. This has been episode 107 from The Soil Up with Brooks Garcia on the Garden Question Podcast, a remix and encore presentation of episode 11. Thank you, Brooks. You're awesome. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.